Chapter Five of Mother Carey's Chickens by Kate Douglas Wiggins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Amy Benton. Mother Carey's Chickens by Kate Douglas Wiggins. Chapter Five. How about Julia? How about Julia? We often speak of a family circle, but there are none too many of them. Parallel lines never meeting, squares, triangles, oblongs, and particularly those oblongs pulled askew, known as rhomboids. These and other geometrical figures abound, but circles are comparatively few. In a true family circle, a father and a mother first clasp each other's hands, liking well to be thus clasped. Then they stretch out a hand to either side, and these are speedily grasped by children, who hold one another firmly and complete the ring. One child is better than nothing, a great deal better than nothing. It is at least an effort in the right direction, but the circle that ensues is not, even then, a truly nice shape. You can stand as handsomely as ever you like, but it simply won't become round. The minute that two, three, four, five join in, the roundness grows, and the merriment also, and the laughter, and the power to do things. Responsibility and care also, but what is the use of discouraging circles when there are not enough of them anyway? The Carey family circle had been round and complete, with love and harmony between all its component parts. In family rhomboids, for instance, mother loves the children, and father does not. Or father does, but does not love mother. Or father and mother love each other, and the children do not get their share. It is impossible to enumerate all the little geometrical peculiarities which keep a rhomboid from being a circle but one person can just stand out enough to spoil the shape, or put hands behind back and refuse to join at all. About the ugliest thing in the universe is that non-joining habit. You would think that anybody, however dull, might consider his hands and guess by the look of them that they must be made to work and help and take hold of somebody else's hands. Miserable, useless, flabby paws, those of the non-joiner, that he feeds and dresses himself with, and then hangs to his selfish sides, or puts behind his beastly back. When Captain Carey went on his long journey into the unknown and uncharted land, the rest of the Careys tried in vain for a few months to still be a family, and did not succeed at all. They clung as closely to one another as ever they could, but there was always a gap in the circle where father had been. Some men, silent, unresponsive, absent-minded, and especially absorbed in business, might drop out and not be missed. But Captain Carey was full of vitality, warmth, and high spirits. It is strange that so many men think that the possession of a child makes them a father. It does not. But it is a curious and very general misapprehension. Captain Carey was a boy with his boys, and a gallant lover with his girls. To his wife, oh, we will not even touch upon that ground. She never did, to any one or anything but her own heart. Such an one could never disappear from memory. Such a loss could never be made wholly good. The only thing to do was to remember father's pride and justify it, to recall his care for mother, and take his place as far as might be. The only thing for all, as the months went on, was to be what mother called the three B's, brave, bright, and busy. To be the last was by far the easiest, for the earliest effort at economy had been the reluctant dismissal of Joanna, the chambermaid. In old-fashioned novels the devoted servant always insisted on remaining without wages, but this story concerns itself with life at a later date. Joanna wept at the thought of leaving, 
but she never thought of the romantic and illogical expedient of staying on without compensation. Captain Carey's salary had been five thousand dollars, or rather was to have been, for he had only attained his promotion three months before his death. There would have been an extra five hundred dollars a year when he was at sea, and on the strength of this addition to their former income he intended to increase the amount of his life insurance. But it had not yet been done when the sudden illness seized him, an illness that began so gently and so innocently, and terminated with such sudden and unexpected fatality. The life insurance, such as it was, must be put into the bank for emergencies. Mrs. Carey realized that that was the only proper thing to do when there were four children under fifteen to be considered. The pressing question, however, was how to keep it in the bank, and subsist on a captain's pension of thirty dollars a month. There was the ten thousand, hers and the captain's, in Alan Carey's business, but Alan was seriously ill with nervous prostration, and there was no money put into his business ever had come out, even in a modified form. The admiral was at the other end of the world, and even had he been near at hand, Mrs. Carey would never have confided the family difficulties in him. She could hardly have allowed him even to tide her over her immediate pressing anxieties, remembering his invalid sister and his many responsibilities. No, the years until Gilbert was able to help, or Nancy old enough to use her talents, or the years before the money invested with Alan would bring dividends, those must be years of self-sacrifice on everybody's part, and more even than that, they must be fruitful years, in which not mere saving and economizing, but earning, would be necessary. It was only lately that Mrs. Carey had talked over matters with the three eldest children, but the present house was too expensive to be longer possible as a home, and the question of moving was a matter of general concern. Joanna had been, up to the present moment, the only economy, but alas, Joanna was but a drop in the necessary bucket. On a certain morning in March Mrs. Carey sat in her room with a letter in her lap and the children surrounding her. It was from Mr. Manson, Alan Carey's younger partner, the sort of letter that dazed her, opening up as it did so many questions of expediency, duty, and responsibility. The gist of it was this, that Alan Carey was a broken man, in mind and body, that both for the climate and for treatment he was to be sent to a rest-cure in the Adirondacks, that some time or other, in Mr. Manson's opinion, the firm's investments might be profitable if kept long enough, but there was no difficulty in keeping them, for nobody in the universe wanted them at the present moment, that Alan's little daughter Julia had no source of income whatever after her father's monthly bills were paid, and that her only relative outside of the Careys, a certain Miss Anne Chadwick, had refused to admit her into her house. Mr. Carey only asked Miss Chadwick as a last resort, wrote Mr. Manson, for his very soul quailed at the thought of letting you, his brother's widow, suffer any more by his losses than was necessary, and he studiously refused to let you know the nature and extent of his need. Miss Chadwick's only response to his request was that she believed in every tub standing on its own bottom, that if he had harbored the same convictions, he would not have been in his present extremity. I am telling you this, my dear Mrs. Carey, the writer went on, just to get your advice about the child. I well know that your income will not support your own children. What, therefore, shall we do with Julia? I am a poor young bachelor, with two sisters to support. I shall find a position, of course, and I shall never cease nursing Carey's various affairs and projects during the time of his exile, but I cannot assume an ounce more of financial responsibility." There had been quite a council over the letter, and parts of it had been read more than once by Mrs. Carey, but the children, though very sympathetic with Uncle Alan and loud in their exclamations of, "'Poor Julia!' 
had not suggested any remedy for the situation. "'Well,' said Mrs. Carey, folding the letter, "'there seems to be but one thing for us to do. "'Do you mean that you're going to have Julia come and live with us? "'What, be one of the family?' exclaimed Gilbert. "'That is what I want to discuss,' she replied. "'You three are the family as well as I. "'Come in,' she called, for she heard the swift feet of the youngest Petrel ascending the stairs. "'Come in. "'Where is there a sweeter Peter, a fleeter Peter, an eater Peter, than ours, I should like to know? "'And where is a better adviser for the council?' "'Neater, mother, how can you?' inquired Kathleen. "'I meant neater when he is just washed and dressed,' retorted Peter's mother. "'Are you coming to the family council, sweet Pete?' Peter climbed on his mother's knee, and answered by a vague affirmative nod, his whole mind being on the extraction of a slippery marble from a long-necked bottle. "'Then be quiet and speak only when we ask your advice,' continued Mrs. Carey. "'Unless I were obliged to, children, I should be sorry to go against all your wishes.' I might be willing to bear my share of a burden, but more is needed than that. I think, said Nancy suddenly, aware now of the trend of her mother's secret convictions, I think Julia is a smug, conceited, vain, affected little Pete. And here she caught her mother's eye, and suddenly she heard, inside of her head or heart or conscience, a chime of words next to father. Making a magnificent, oratorical leap, she finished her sentence with only a second's break. "'Peacock! But if mother thinks Julia is a duty, a duty she is, and we must brace up and do her. Must we love her mother, or can we just be good and polite to her, giving her the breast and taking the drumsticks? She won't ever say, don't let me rob you like cousin Anne when she takes the breast.' Kathleen looked distinctly unresigned. She hated drumsticks and all they stood for in life. She disliked the wall-side of the bed, the middle seat of the carriage, the heel of the loaf, the underdone biscuit, the tail part of the fish, the scorched end of the omelette. It will make more difference to me than anybody, she said gloomily. Everything makes more difference to you, Kitty, remarked Gilbert. I mean, I'm always fourth when the cake plate's passed, and everything. Now Julia'll be fourth, and I shall be fifth. It's lucky people can't tumble off the floor. Poor abused Kathleen, cried Gilbert. Well, mother, you're always right, but I can't see why you take another one into the family, when we've been saying for a week that there isn't even enough for us five to live on. It looks mighty queer to put me in the public school and spend the money you save that way on Julia. Way down deep in her heart, Mother Carey felt a pang. There was a little seed of hard self-love in Gilbert that she wanted to dig up from the soil and get rid of before it sprouted and waxed too strong. Julia is a Carey chicken, after all, Gilbert, she said. "'But she's Uncle Alan's chicken, and I'm Captain Carey's eldest son.' "'That's the very note I should strike, if I were you,' his mother responded, "'only with a little different accent. "'What would Captain Carey's eldest son like to do for his only cousin? "'A little girl, younger than himself, "'a girl who has had a very silly, unwise, unhappy mother "'for the first five years of her life, "'and who is now practically fatherless, for a time at least.' Gilbert wriggled, as if in great moral discomfort, as indeed he was. "'Well,' he said, "'I don't want to be selfish, and if the girls say, yes, I'll have to fall in. But it isn't logic all the same to ask a sixth to share when there isn't enough for five. "'I agree with you there, Gilly,' smiled his mother. "'The only question before the council is, does logic belong at the top, in the scale of reasons why we do certain things?' If we ask Julia to come, she will have to fall into line, as you say, and share the family misfortunes as best she can. She's a regular shirk, and always was, this from Kathleen. 
"'She would never come at all if she guessed her cousin's opinions of her. "'That is very certain,' remarked Mrs. Carey pointedly. "'Now, mother, look me in the eye and speak the whole truth,' asked Nancy. "'Do you like Julia Carey?' Mrs. Carey laughed as she answered. "'Frankly, then, I do not. "'But,' she continued, "'I do not like several of the remarks that have been made at this council, "'yet I manage to bear them.' "'Of course I shan't call Julia smug and conceited to her face,' asserted Nancy encouragingly. "'I hope that her bosom friend Gladys Ferguson has disappeared from view. "'The last time Julia visited us, Kitty and I got so tired of Gladys Ferguson's dresses, "'her French maid, her bedroom furniture, and her travels abroad, "'that we wrote her name on a piece of paper, put it in a box, "'and buried it in the back yard the minute Julia left the house.' "'When you write, mother, tell Julia there's a piece of breast for her, "'but not a mouthful of my drumstick goes to Gladys Ferguson.' <laughs> "'The more the hungrier. Better invite Gladys, too,' suggested Gilbert. "'Then we can say like that simple little kid in Wordsworth. "'Sisters and brother, little maid, how many may you be? "'How many? Seven in all,' she said, and wondering looked at me. "'And then it goes on thus,' laughed Nancy. "'And who are they? I pray you tell,' she answered, Seven are we. "'Mother with us makes five, and then there's Gladys and Julie.' Everybody joined in the laugh then, including Peter, who was especially uproarious, and who had an idea he had made the joke himself, else why did they all kiss him? "'How about Julia? What do you say, Peter?' asked his mother. "'I want her. She played horse once,' said Peter." The opinion that the earth revolved around his one small person was natural at the age of four, but the same idea of the universe still existed in Gilbert's mind. A boy of thirteen ought perhaps to have a clearer idea of the relative sizes of world and individual, at least that was the conviction in Mother Carey's mind. End of chapter 5